Welcome to the State Change Podcast, where we discuss the issues and subjects that surround the construction of the new internet. I'm your host, Arthur Falls. Today we compare in-depth the self-sovereign and federated models of identity. Why is our means of proving who we are important? Well, for one thing, relying on an authority which doesn't have our best interests at heart to manage our identity is one of the many problems exploited by the decentralized propaganda machine described in the last episode. Our guests today are Christian Lundqvist, Senior Technologist at Consensus and Chief Architect and Researcher of the Uport Self-Sovereign Identity Platform, and Steve Wilson, who has spent 22 years researching identity. Currently, Steve leads the independent research business Lockstep, and is also working with Constellation Research, where Steve studies blockchain technology. So, thanks for joining me, Christian and Steve. Now, there's a uh, there's a buzzword that is gaining visibility in the identity space, and that's self sovereign identity. Could you guys uh, define that for? the audience and explain what its relevance is to our current understanding of identity and uh, and its relevance to the way that we represent ourselves online. You bet. Look, I'll, um, I'll have a go at that, if you like. Um, Arthur, uh, we've been talking a lot about self-sovereign identity recently. Um, it, it's, in a sense, it's a natural development of federated identity. And it's been given a real sort of kickstart um, in recent years by blockchain for reasons that I think um, are a little bit complicated. And if we've got time, we can unpack those issues. The idea of self-sovereign identity is is very well-meaning. It it starts with an observation that there's a real power imbalance in identity. A lot of identity is, is quote-unquote, provided to us by big companies and governments and banks. And <clears throat> part of the mix is a sense that our data is being exploited, a sense that um, we have lost control over how we conduct ourselves online, and self-sovereign identity is a, is a reaction to that, to try and um, invert the power relationship, if you like, and somehow give control back to users. Now, you can sense hesitancy in my voice because self-sovereign identity, I think, is very well-meaning. Um, it's trying to get us to a point where people have more control over their identities and more say about their data flows. But, you know, the problem with it is that it's, um, it's, it's a little bit too metaphorical. It's got um, a very loose definition and it uses some very idealistic language, I think, um, to, to set the scene. And, you know, I spend a lot of time in my work trying to get people to set the scene very carefully with identity and, and be clear about what problems they're trying to solve. And Christian, you're working directly in the self-sovereign identity identity space with with Uport. So I wonder what your uh, what your take is. Yes, I actually agree with uh, with much of what Steve is saying. So so there is a lot of uh, let's say a flowery language around around this concept. Um, but for me. I actually view it as a very specific thing. So I, I view self-sovereign identity as basically the ability for an end user of an identity system to prove that they are in control of a specific identifier without relying on on a uh, trusted third party at that point. 
So for me, self-sovereign identity is, is very tied to blockchain. It was around a little bit before that. So you have the UMA user managed and um, user managed access, I believe it's called, uh, and things like that. But with blockchain, uh, we had the notion for the first time that you have um, digital representations of of value and assets that can be controlled directly by uh, by the end user. And so this was this was something quite uh, quite new. And, and so I think it is a you know not that big a leap from that to saying okay you know I can control these assets uh, independently. So you know I should be able to control my my identity independently. And and then you have to define exactly what that means. Yeah, and I think that that's a really interesting point that um, <clears throat> I think that the identity engineers as a bunch in the last 20 years, and I count myself among them, we've made a bit of a mess of it. We haven't really been clear about definitions. And I think that we've made this problem space really complicated, in, again, in a well-meaning way. You know, I don't think anybody tries to make things complicated, but um, we, we get caught up with a whole lot of philosophical tangles and, you know, we, we debate about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin sometimes. So I think we've got to be clear about the problems that we're trying to solve. We know that passwords are a problem, enough said about that. Uh, we know that identity is, is like, expensive to, um, to establish. The KYC rules when you have to go to a bank and present passports and birth certificates is just nuts in the digital age, so we all know that. And, of course, there's the privacy problem that, there are too many sort of, um, um, you know, robber barons out there, too many information businesses, digital businesses that are leveraging identity and, um, and trying to join everything up and, and, and mine our data and exploit us. So that's all bad. But I, I don't think that we need to revisit, you know, the philosophy of identity. I, I think that online identity is pretty easily understood. Identity is just how am I known? And it breaks down into the attributes about me. Forever, the problem with the internet has been how do you how do you work out what you need to know about somebody to do business with them, um, and where do you get that information from? So it all depends on context. If I'm banking, um, then the context is my account. If I'm shopping, then the the context is what store am I at, and do they accept Visa or Mastercard? If I'm in a health record, the the context depends on whether I um, I'm dealing with my general practitioner or maybe I'm dealing with a medical social network or maybe I'm dealing with a psychiatrist and things are terribly sensitive. So different contexts demand different attributes and different identities. And depending on what you're trying to do online, you need to know and show different things about yourself, different attributes. Sometimes your attribute is your credit card number. Sometimes your attribute is how old are you. Sometimes your attribute is, um, you know, do you have an anonymous gaming handle? So all of this stuff varies from context to context. I actually think this is kind of simple. Um, we need the way or we need the means to work out certain facts about people and do that reliably and with provenance. You know, if, if, I, if I say that I'm over 18, then you really want to know, you know, how does anybody know that I'm over 18? If I'm trying to say I'm a citizen of Australia, then, you know, you, you want to know the provenance of my citizenship. And all of that stuff's fairly straightforward. I, I just think that we've tangled ourselves up with a whole lot of philosophical 
debates about um, trust and about identity and, you know, what is identity? Does identity come from, from within? Does it come from the psyche? Does it come from the community? These are very interesting subjects, but I think they make the digital identity um, thing just a little bit too complicated. Yeah, I I also agree with that. I, I think there is a... Uh... It, it's very tempting to <laughs> to get caught up in in philosophical discussions, especially you know even when designing a, a very concrete system. You know, so so it's important that that we we kind of try and stay um, stay grounded. Um, so I want I want to circle back to to what Steve said about uh, attributes. So I think this is this is a fundamental aspect so basically um you know i i need to present different attributes about myself in different situations so if i'm um if i'm investing in a securities offering i need a lot more attributes you know i i need uh, to have been kyc if i'm just playing a game of chess online I don't need anything, basically. I just need some anonymous handle. And I think if we are to create robust identity systems, they should be able to handle uh, both of these cases. But but when it comes to when it comes to these attributes, um, I think it's important to note that the attributes need to be um, how to put it. They need to be anchored in something. Yeah. So that that's that's where the that's where the notion of of identifiers come in. And and recently there's this term uh, decentralized identifier or DID that's that's come up. And the idea uh, the the idea behind that is that if you can have a an identifier that is self issued, and so this often means um, you create a transaction on the blockchain, and the and the identifier is is stored on the blockchain, and it's linked to to a public key. So if you can have that, then that becomes a very secure uh, base for your identity, and then you can then you can stack attributes on top of that. So you can have a bank that says that yes, the person that has this identifier. Uh, they showed their passport and they showed, you know, all this information. And now you have a very cryptographically strong statement that says that this person is KYC. And then that can be used in, in various uh, uh, in various contexts. Normally, the way this is done is not through a blockchain, but through a uh, what's called a certificate authority. And so, for instance, the, uh, the Estonian e-identity system there you have um, you know in essence the government of Estonia basically claiming that okay this this person with this social security number uh, has this public key and then they have the public key on their uh, identity card and then they can do things like online voting etc and so in in self-sovereign identities the the role of the certificate authority here is in some sense replaced by the blockchain and that's kind of the the new the new thing that's come out during the last years 
so so actually let's reframe this let's let's take a take a slight uh, a slight left turn here uh Steve you mentioned that self-sovereign identity is something that has evolved out of federated identity could you define what federated identity is and explain that process of uh of evolution to uh to self-sovereign identity or if not evolution at least mutation to self-sovereign identity yeah you bet um federated identity um is essentially a way of making things more efficient and more streamlined. It starts with the observation that we have a lot of identities, um, and let's use that term loosely. Um, we have a lot of identifiers. We have a lot of accounts. Um, we go to a lot of trouble to get identified. You know, to, to open a bank account. And Christians touched on KYC, which is a which is a fantastic problem worldwide. Um, it costs a lot of money. <clears throat> it, it takes a lot of time to go through KYC. So. Why the hell can't you um, save some time and reuse that effort? The idea of federation is if you've, um, if you've established an identity at one place, then why can't you reuse that identity somewhere else? Now, um, there are fine-grained and coarse-grained federation, or there's, there's big federation and there's little federation. The, the really easy federation of things like Google and Facebook and Twitter accounts where you can log on with Facebook <clears throat> or you can log on with Google that's a very low-grade federated identity. And by low-grade, I mean there's not a lot of information in there. You know, my Twitter handle is largely anonymous or pseudonymous, and I can still use that to, to log on to a blog site. What's going on there is that it's just a handle. It's just a bit of convenience. And maybe my picture or, or a, my name will pop up, and it'll help thread some things together. So that's an easy form of federation. There's not a lot of information. There's not a lot of certainty about who I really am. If you want to do the, the high-end federation, and the vision here comes from like um, Microsoft's laws of identity, and it was expressed also in the US National Strategy for Trusted Identities in Cyberspace, that's um, NSTIC. The NSTIC vision five years ago was, was exactly this. If you've got a student card, why can't you log on to your bank with it? Or if you've got a bank card, why can't you log on to your health record with your bank card or your bank ID? And that turns out to be easier said than done. The trouble is that if you've already established identity with one bank, the idea of federation is that that bank is going to vouch for your identity in some other context. So in effect, the bank will say, hey, I know Steve Wilson. So if Steve wants to assert his identity at a health record, then the bank says, I'm, I'm happy to say that this is Steve Wilson. And it's not what it, it's not what it appears to be. Um, the, the bank can say, look, I'm Steve Wilson with a bank account. Um, and maybe I'm Steve Wilson with a credit history or a credit rating. But if I'm going to do something that's outside of the bank's control, like access a health record, you need to be really precise about what it is that the bank is being asked to do when you federate the bank's identity. So these things, when, they, when there's a lot riding on it, um, these things become really quite difficult. So that's federated identity. It, it's led to a lot of really good engineering work. <clears throat> um, there, are, there are protocols, there are... Plenty of um, uh, IT standards like OAuth and Open Identity, and we've heard about UMA already from Christian, um, User Managed um, um, Authority. Uh, so all of these sort of building blocks are really good, but what's frustrating is that they're still really hard to put together. In Estonia, we've got a really nice identity system where you can do all sorts of things with, with your one government identity, and that's sort of being federated across Europe. You know, you can use your Estonian EID to do other things in Europe. But all of that comes with a government mandate. 
So it's really not an open system. It's, it's um, closed insofar as there are government legislations behind it. There's a famous system in Scandinavia called Bank ID where you can, you can use a bank account to log on to the government. But, you know, the Bank ID is supported by a piece of legislation again. So, again, it's not quite an open system, but it's a system that is underpinned by um, legislated rules. Now, I actually think that that's a good thing. Uh, I think that the idea of a truly open identity system where I can take an identity and, and transact with somebody who's never met me before, um, I think that that's frankly pie in the sky and I don't think it's even terribly important. I don't think that total strangers normally do important business online. So I think that the um, the hope of open identity is a little bit um, idealistic. But, you know, to come back to the question of self-sovereign identity, um, I, I see that as an evolution of federated identity because it's trying to it's trying to observe that identity is really hard at the moment and identity tends to be uh, driven by or, or certainly legislated by great big institutions. So the, the poor old humble user doesn't have much say in, in KYC. I certainly have no say in getting a passport. Um, any of those government identities are really sort of set in stone. And the self-sovereign identity movement is saying, look, why don't we, why don't we um, make things more user-centric? Why don't we give poor old user a bit more control? Um, and that's that's an outshot from federated identity insofar as we're trying to make things simpler and we're trying to make things more usable. The problem, as I see it with self-sovereign, if, if I've stated it correctly, is that you're trying to sort of reverse the power and you're trying to reverse the risk. The, the reason, you know, like it, like it or not, the reason why banks set KYC rules and the reason why governments set rules is that they bear the risk if identity goes wrong. So, um, you know, if somebody steals my credit card and starts to use it, then, you know, I don't actually bear much risk for that. Um, it's the, the merchants and the banks that will actually um, accept the charges and, and accept the costs. So, like it or not, you have to allow or you have to admit that because the banks accept most of the risk, that they actually have the privilege of setting the identity rules. And um, I just don't know what we can do about that. Um, I, I certainly lobby for better privacy and I certainly um, hate it when businesses exploit information and they use my identity behind my back or they, they, they data mine me behind my back. And I hate all of that. But I just don't think that we're going to solve those power imbalances with identity. I think, I think it's just too big a shift to, to change the way that people do identity and, and to go down the self-sovereign path. Um, but, you know, I've, I've talked for a long time. I, I will just wrap up with one note. I, I think that the ideas of self-sovereign identity are super important and, and the way that it has led to these ideas of verified attributes and verified claims I think is fantastic. Um, there's a lot of work to be done now on innovation around how do these verified attributes become um, discoverable and some people want to use the blockchain or distributed ledgers to make verified attributes discoverable. Um, I'm involved more in PIC-AI projects where we use certificates to make um, verified attributes available offline in, in novel ways. So there's a huge amount of innovation happening here and, and, a, and a very exciting supply chain is emerging about how to get verified attributes and how to present them and make them discoverable. Yeah, again, I actually, I very much agree with, with what Steve is saying. And for instance, if I take the example of of the bank so we talked about the bank being responsible for when something goes wrong with my with my identity and things like that 
I think that's a good thing. But I, I think this is also a, a, a difference in terminology between different identity systems. So, so let me try and uh, tease out what I mean. So the way I see the, the, the scenario with, uh, let's say, the bank providing me an identity. So I'm a Swedish citizen. So I, I use a bank ID every day and, and I really like it. Uh, not every day since I live in the US, but, but uh, I, I use it a lot. And in that system, basically, the bank provides you with, with your identity with, within that context. So the way I see self-sovereign identity is that the banks, they shouldn't give me my identity. And by that, I, I mean, they shouldn't provide me my core identifier. What they should be providing is, is an attestation or a verifiable claim that, that, that Steve mentioned. And this claim says that, you know, the the person with this, uh, like, we're vouching for the person who has this identifier. And we're vouching for them within a specific context. And so when I interact with, let's say, a hedge fund, I will present my, my identifier. So that, that identifier is, is self-sovereign, it's controlled by me. But I will also present uh, my verifiable claim that says that the person who has this identifier, they have undergone this, this KYC check. And I believe that with this system, you can basically capture all of the current federated identity systems. So I, I feel like you can have all the benefits of, of the current the current identity systems um, and potentially some of the downsides. But I do think that there is a role also for purely anonymous or pseudonymous identifiers uh, without any linked verifiable claims. So one example of this is, of course, um, the blockchain itself. So in in Bitcoin, for instance, I can set up a um, uh, an address, and I can have people uh, pay me bitcoins in exchange for I don't know a music download or something like that. And in that case, I might not uh, even be interested in in who who the person is that is paying me. I just know that there is some pseudonymous identifier that sent me. Um, $1 worth of value and I will send them a, a some digital good in return. And so that's kind of where I see the, uh, the strength of self-sovereign identity that you can have, you know, by using verifiable claims, you can have very strong um, uh, strong attested identities, so attested by a bank or attested by a government or something like that. Uh, but you can also have a, you know, you can have small throwaway identities that you create yourself, maybe for logging into a, uh, you know, logging into a newspaper website or something like that, where, where you don't feel the need to have any, uh, any history or, or strong identity. And so, I I see self-sovereign identity mainly as a very flexible uh, 
um, very flexible system where you can have all kinds of uh, uh, of identity use cases. Steve, you mentioned that you were working predominantly with PKIs or public key infrastructures. From what you just said, Christian, I'm reminded of uh, of this idea of a web of trust and how theoretically using a public key infrastructure, any network of identities and of trust relationships can be represented using a web of trust. Is that something you guys would agree with? Look, I'm not, not cleanly agree with. There's a lot of nuance there, Arthur. Um, the trouble with web of trust intellectually is that it it um, it decentralizes everything to the point that it, it says that um, users more or less on their own can establish what they need to know about each other um, through a dialogue or through, you know, in-person getting to know each other. There are a lot of ideas in blockchain um, that are very similar. The idea of blockchain is that we want to disintermediate the institutions and have a very much flatter structure where people can deal with each other directly. Um, and um, there's been very good, very current work, ongoing work called the Web of Trust Rebooted, um, which uh, involves blockchain or distributed ledger ideas um, for new ways of distributing public keys. Now, that's great. The, the nuance is that in this world of verified attributes, what really matters is provenance. So if I'm going to say, look, I'm over 18 years of age, or if, I, if I'm going to say I've got a credit rating of four out of five stars, or if I'm going to say um, I am a mental health patient in my I'm a legitimate patient, I'm in a clinical trial, I want to be completely anonymous, but here's my, my clinical trial identifier, A, B, C, D. Um, these are all different sorts of attributes, and they're completely useless without provenance. So if somebody comes along and says, I'm over 18, the question is, who says? Um, or if I say my credit rating is five star, well, who says? And, you know, above all, if I want to be part of a, of a, of a medical study or a medical social network and I want to say, look, I'm a real patient, I've really got um, depression, I'm really on the following drugs and I really want to be, be part of this community, well, who says? So the, the attributes that have been claimed need to come with provenance. And, you know, like it or not, the provenance comes from a third party. So one of the fundamental objectives of, of um, Web of Trust and of blockchain is to get rid of third parties. And, and here we have a real dilemma. Um, you, you need to trust somebody um, to, to rate credit or to um, issue identifiers or to say that I'm on a particular drug. You know, you need to trust doctors. You need to trust stockbrokers. You need to trust banks um, at some level. Now, again, you know, I repeat, I don't want to trust these people without qualification, and I think that there's too much power indeed. You know, the, the institutions have got much too much power. But we're on the horns of a dilemma. You just can't go around self-asserting some of these important attributes. So what we need is a system of provenance where if there are verified claims, you need to show who's doing the verification. Um, if there are verified attributes, you need to show the provenance. And... Um, that's exciting at the moment because there are different ways of doing that. There are hybrid technologies which allow you to get verified claims from, um, um, you know, maybe a, a driver's licence bureau could give me some claims about how old I am and where I live and my, my driver's licence, and those claims could be digitally signed by a DMV. 
um, my age could be signed by a DMV or it could be signed by a government bureau or my age could be signed by a, a commercial provider. There's a number of different ways of you know, getting to the source of truth. What's really interesting then is how do you convey the provenance? How do you prove that this attribute came from a real DMV? Um, you know, if, if I want to say I've got a first aid certificate um, because I want to go and give help in a, as a first responder um, and I want to provide medical assistance, well, where did I get my first aid certificate from? So there's, a, there's different technologies for, for certainly producing digital signatures and certificates that bake in the provenance. Then the question is how do you make these things discoverable? So, um, you know, my company, Lockstep, is working with um, Department of Homeland Security to use certificates and mobile phones to convey um, provenance and attributes um, peer-to-peer. Uh, and that's, that's like a push model. That's like saying, look, I want you to know that I've got a first aid certificate. So here I am. I'm going to push my first aid certificate from my phone over to your phone and you can see where the first aid certificate has come from, and you can say, right, whoever this guy is, I, you know, he says he's Steve. I don't really know what his name is. I don't care, but I really care about that first aid certificate. So that sort of push model, I think, is really natural with PKI and certificates. There's, a, there's also a pull model where you, you want to go around cyberspace um, knowing that your attributes are available, and you want to allow the people that you're transacting with to be able to get at those attributes and see where they came from and and um, and make these things discoverable. So uh, I, I agree that I think that distributed ledger technology has a really good role to play there as well. And distributed ledger um, provides a really nice way of beefing up those attributes through a community of people that are all using the attributes and pushing on them and verifying them and reaching some sort of consensus about maybe ensembles of attributes that, that are important to you. So we're seeing a lot of work being done in that area, and I, I think that that's super exciting. So hopefully that's sort of given you a bit of a sense of the difference, I think, between the PKI approach and the and the DLT approach. Yeah, so so for me, I would say that the, um, the one of the core uses of, of the blockchain is that it can act as a PKI. So basically it can provide a mapping, a cryptographically secure mapping from uh, an identifier to a public key. And, and this, is, this is important because you want, um, you want identities to be able to switch out their public keys because you're gonna, you're gonna lose your identity card or you're gonna lose your mobile phone, et cetera. So, so it's important to have a way um, to Given someone's uh, identifier, you need to you need to be able to fetch their um, their public key, and and the blockchain is is a way to do this. And I, I also want to say that the the verifiable claims uh, angle is extremely important. So we have this uh, in our uh, uh, in our uPort mobile app. We also are building the ability to to push a a verifiable claim to someone else. The whole question is is interesting because if you have a verifiable claim, you can see with cryptographic certainty that a specific identifier has, you know, has endorsed that claim. But the question then becomes, as Steve alluded to, how do you know how do you know you can trust that identifier, or who who is that identifier? And so I think, I think there is a role there, uh, 
in our world, the way we trust things are through uh, certificate authorities, mainly. When you go, go to google.com, uh, you get a little green checkbox and then you uh, you know you feel like you can trust that website and that checkbox comes from 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 a certificate authority that is um, that is checking that website and, and making sure it's uh, you know it's really uh, connected to Google so I think uh, in terms of, of web of trust I'm also skeptical about the notion that we can dispense with all authority and just have everything, um, you know, everything be attested peer to peer, because I think it will be, you know, in order for that to work, you need some notion of reputation about the people making those claims and reputation systems is a, is a very hard problem, you know, even more uh, it's more hard than uh, than identity systems and, and identity systems is a hard problem by itself so I also think that there is definitely a role for trusted third parties but I believe that if you have if you have a you know a self-sovereign identity then you can allow um, what's been called trust agility. So this means that in every situation, you can you can choose who to trust. So for instance, if I want to know someone's age, I can say, okay, I trust I trust the DMV and I trust this list of banks. And I know I know those banks because I've you know I've been in those banks and gotten the their identifiers themselves, so I have like a direct trust relationship. But in some in some other cases, you might have a weaker notion of trust. Like uh, um, I give sometimes the example of a book club where any current member can invite other members by by giving them a uh, a verifiable claim and so in that case the person you're trusting are other members of the book club you have there also a notion of a trusted third party but there is a lot of flexibility in who you choose to be this trusted third party whereas i think in, in a traditional pki system with certificate authorities you kind of have to trust the certificate authority uh, because that's that's the root of trust. And if they have bad, if they have bad security and things like that, or get hacked, then, then that can be very problematic for the whole system. But is it this all just web of trust? In one, in some sense or another, it's just depending on the degree of, as you said, trust agility that we have and the ability and. A reduced monopolization of trust, maybe. It seems like federated uh, federated identity versus self-sovereign identity is really a question of how much mobility you have uh, around and how and whether or not you're forced to trust certain parties. And a uh, and a federated identity model can fit within a self-sovereign identity model as well. 
I mean, is that – I mean, and there's there's another question that I have and that is about the liability around uh, around this idea of – what do you guys uh, call them? Not attestations. You called them uh, – uh, Verifiable claims. Okay, yeah. About, around the liability of verifiable claims because I think of a bank making a AML, CFT, uh, KYC uh, verifiable claim – about a specific identity, which then goes to another bank, commits fraud, turns out to have not been the person, and then you've got this uh, you've got this liability rushing back to the other bank. And I'm wondering if that is a yep. that is the real thing that separates self sovereign and federated identity. Yep. Look, I want to make a point about risk management um, and liability here too, Arthur. Um, in this area, the lawyers get a really bad rap. And, and, you know, people say, oh, it's all the lawyer's fault. But, you know, I'm actually quite sympathetic because it's about risk management. So um, federation sort of works as follows, really. You know, the grand plan, um, imagine you've got a bank, Bank A, and me, Steve Wilson, I, I get identified by the bank and I can do business with the bank. And then I say, look, I want to federate my identity with the bank and I want Bank A to vouch for me um, to Bank B. Now, I've got a totally different relationship with Bank B. You know, there's, there's going to be online applications, there's going to be websites, there's going to be banking products that have their own terms and conditions, and Bank B manages its relationship with me according to those, you know, in that context of apps and websites and terms and conditions. Bank A has got nothing to do with that. The, the things that I would do with Bank B are completely outside of the control of Bank A. So... There's really a silo between me and Bank A and there's a silo between me and Bank B. And those silos um, have got a bad name as well, but I actually think of them as, as like niches in an ecosystem. They are, they're really like a niche that I've evolved into and it's all about the way that Bank A can manage its risks and Bank B can manage its risks. Now, Federation says to Bank A, look, we want you to tell Bank B, um, well, I don't know what it wants us to tell, but somehow, you know, this is very loose and very imprecise, but the idea is that Bank A somehow is going to stand behind me uh, when I'm dealing with Bank B. And you just nailed it, Arthur. In effect, it's like KYC. You know, if I'm going to do KYC at Bank A, um, how does that KYC transport over to Bank B? Um, I've looked at four or five really major federations over the last 15 years, and they've all failed because you can't write a contract that codifies those risks. Now, it's not, it's not for lack of trying, and I know some very good international lawyers that have tried to write contracts in this new paradigm of being able to break down those silos and, you know, allow risk management to cross over organisational boundaries, and it's really, really hard. Without legislation, it actually hasn't been done anywhere in the world. You know, Bank ID has done it really well in Scandinavia, but, it, it, you know, it's, it's got its law behind it. So um, there's some... This, problem is easier said than done. There's really nothing in self-sovereign identity that makes the problem any easier because um, the fact is that if you've got attributes, people need to know where they come from. And um, when somebody stands behind an attribute, they need to be comfortable that it's okay for other people to rely on that. Here's what I think is a breakthrough. Um, it's very hard to federate, you know, my identity, Steve Wilson, um, because, you know, I've got a wallet full of cards that all say Steve Wilson, 20 different cards, and they actually all look the same, but they're all different. Um, they're all different relationships. But if we if we drop down a level and look at attributes like 
Steve Wilson's age or Steve Wilson's residency or my credit rating or my professional qualifications. Um, all of those, you know, bite-sized attributes really don't say who I am, but they say what I am. And that interest in what I am instead of who I am is very, very powerful. It, it, it protects privacy and it's more easily to, fit, easy to federate. You know, I think it's some, um, I can imagine businesses that are willing to say, look, Steve Wilson is over the age of 18. We don't want to say anything more about him. We don't want the liability of, of saying whether he's a good guy or not. But we're happy to just say, you know, he's over 18. So at, at Lockstep, we've been working on a vision that says you can have a number of different attributes and you can get them from different places and you can present them in different ways. And they're more easy to federate because the, what an attribute means is a lot less complicated than what an identity means. Um, so that, that's, that's sort of the future. And I'm absolutely delighted to see that a number of people are landing on the same realisation that it's what, not who that matters and that you can break attributes down into these um, bite-sized pieces. And then we've got all of this innovation that, that both Christian and I are involved with. Like how do you, how do you present those facts and figures and attributes in, in different um, ways that are fit for different purposes? So that, that's where I think this is heading and I think that that's the way that we've got to tackle liability. Yeah, I, I, th I think that's a great point. And I think that, you know, the, the reason why this is very hard to do in banking is, is just because of the, of the liability angle. And what, yeah, and, and, and so the idea that one bank can, can make a, a powerful uh, all-encompassing statement about someone and then you can use that to to have any relationship I mean to, to have an arbitrary relationship with another bank I, I think that might be um, you know asking for too much but like Steve said the the bank might be willing to say yes we attest to the fact that uh, Christian has more than three hundred thousand dollars in his account, and and they can they can stand by that because you know they are they are comfortable that this is a true fact to the to the best of their knowledge, uh, and now I can use that to um, to claim that I'm an accredited investor, or maybe I have to have more than two million or something. But but ah. so 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 I, I think that's that's an excellent. Um, an excellent way to um, to use these these technologies, and and I think it's it speaks to the power of these technologies too because they are you know they are so flexible. Like it is possible for for the bank to to create a statement that says, you know, we we fully endorse uh, Christian for any banking activity with any bank in the world you know it, it is possible to do that but from a legal perspective they probably don't want to do that because of the liability but then you can always go down and say hey you know we we don't want to we don't want to say that you're a that you're a good person but we can say that you have more than two million dollars in your account because right. that's that's right. something we can see something very objective and um yeah i want to come back to what you said author about web of trust i mean i think I mean, in some sense 
all society and all interactions in society in, is a web of trust in some way. I mean, when I when I take the bus in the morning, I trust that the that the bus driver will actually take me where he says he will take me, etc. Um, I I just think, and and I think I think uh, Steve would agree. I, I think it's it's hard to you know uh, codify this um, in 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 the way that say uh, PGP and the original Web of Trust tried to do it, where you have this very simple rules of you know this this public key endorses this public key and then right. you aggregate that and then you get something I, I mean i think it's it's about choosing who to trust and often you know who we trust are institutions like banks and governments etc and and i don't think i don't think that's going to change uh, necessarily with you know even with self-sovereign identity systems well look let's um just um go back to that too the thing about the original web of trust is that it really didn't certify or codify anything. It was about um, pairwise people um, getting to know each other and swapping their public keys. Um, yeah. That point about bus drivers is is just so fascinating. But I just want to. I think there's a bit of nuance there that a lot of a lot of what's happening when you get on the bus is that you're not actually trusting the bus driver at all. Um, what you're actually trusting is the bus driving system, where um where the, the bus driver is licensed and they've got a public vehicle license and there's insurance and, you know, the bus that's carrying 80 people has been inspected and it's very highly regulated. So there's an old Italian proverb that says it's really good to trust, but it's even better not to trust. And, and to me, that is a really <laughs> important foundational thing, in fact, for how we go about in digital. You know, it's good to trust, but it's better not to. And what that means is you don't actually want to trust the bus driver because how would you ever make a decision. How would you get on a bus and decide to trust them or not? What you do instead is you trust the system and um, it depersonalizes things. It, it takes it takes a lot of the the individual out. And that that, you know, I think that feels a bit clinical and it feels a little bit impersonal. And there's a there's a bit of a hippie feeling about self-sovereign identity that that we want to restore the nobility of the person and we want to we want to repersonalize. And I get that. But in business, you know, I question whether you really want to repersonalize in business. And I think that we want to we want to be more clinical a lot of the time. And we want to really know precise things about people without going into their um into their personal details. Yeah. I mean I, I think that's a great point. And that kind of also brings us back to to blockchains, because one of the things that that the blockchain does, and you know, one one of the one of the terms that people use about blockchains is just uh, is this trustless, right? And and there, you know, when you do a transaction on a blockchain, again, you're not trusting the person you're transacting with necessarily. You're trusting the the system, so you're right. trusting that the, you know, that the code will run as expected. That that the incentives of the miners are such that they will that they will um, safeguard the network and get paid, etc. And and so uh, I, I think that's that's a very interesting um, point to to 
see the analogies of that with the analogies of of the systems that occur in our society like like the bus driver you know i know that he has an incentive to to take me where i want to go because he gets paid by the system and he he wants to you know make sure he still gets paid so it seems like we've covered a ton of ground here is there anything that we're really missing is there anything that we haven't said that we should uh that we should make sure that we we put in here to make to give everything context. Yeah, so I I want to say that I think I think we're much close. So the like the federated identity and the self sovereign identity are actually much closer uh, than um, than what may originally appear to be the case. Um, I think it's. It's a slight change in viewpoint, but I think that you can get all the benefits from from federated identity in in a in a self sovereign way by using these verifiable claims on top. There are also, I guess, we didn't really cover the the some of the downsides of uh, of uh, self sovereign identity in terms of. Um, the scalability of blockchains and the challenge of of end user key management, etc. But uh, you know we we might be running out of time. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we, we, I think those are two uh, those are two subjects that have been we could go we could uh, we could drag forever on those. Yeah, that, that, that's a whole that's a whole nother show. <laughs> Arthur, I I, I would um. My final remarks would, would have to do with simplicity. I think I, I echo what Christian says about, you know, there's a lot of busy work and a lot of detailed work to do, and, um, and that's, you know, that's engineering work and it's super important. Um, I, I think at the higher level what we're kind of missing is some simplifying assumptions. Um, if I've got one sort of anxiety or, or criticism of self-sovereign identity, it is that it, it's a bit philosophical and it's a bit um, general. I know where they're coming from, um, and, and they're, they're, it's an earnest attempt to to put the person back in the frame. But what goes with that is a whole lot of really complicating generalizations. Um, you know, the, the identity people like to talk about trust. We like to talk about identity. I got into an argument just this morning about Descartes and whether um, whether Rene Descartes um, has got some foundational contributions to make to identity. And I just think, God, stop everybody. Um, that's very interesting, but understand that hundreds of years of, of undergraduate philosophy is still not finished. There are no answers there. There's only questions in philosophy. And that's great for the philosophers, but, you know, for identity management, I, I think that we need to get to some simplifying assumptions. We need to take trust out of it, you know, like we said about bus drivers. Nobody wants to go around trusting bus drivers. You need to trust the system. Um, and I don't think we want to deal with strangers online. That so much of sovereign identity is about stranger to stranger e-business. Um, even some really good technologies like Uprove from Microsoft years ago, it, it's trying to establish what was called unver- um, um, unanticipated assertions, unanticipated attributes. You know, two strangers get together online and they're trying to work out whether or not they're going to accept each other. And that's an academic problem. It just doesn't happen. You know, the vast majority of things that I do online they're really cut and dried. Um, I'm going to go to a health service. I'm going to go to a bank. I'm going to go to my employer's extranet. 
Um, I'm going to I'm going to go to Skype. You know, I'm going to talk to you two guys. I've I've never met you guys, but I'm I'm loving this <laughs> conversation. I know enough about you, and I've got your Skype handles. That's all I need to know. So we're not total strangers. We we know enough about each other, and um, you know, I think that. Uh, I think that a lot of self-sovereign identity is tying itself in knots with trying to solve a really general stranger-to-stranger stranger problem. And um, I, I think well, there's so many urgent problems with, with security and privacy, really urgent problems with with leakage and, and data breaches and, and the, the over-collection of information by the social media companies. It's horrible stuff. And uh, I, I think that we can deal with a lot of those problems in a, in a more pragmatic and more sort of... Um, more, more, you know, take some baby steps and solve these problems one at a time. Um, so that, you know, that's my observation about about self sovereign. Really well meaning, but but sometimes a bit too grand. Well, that was a sobering uh, sobering note to to wind us up on, but but comforting as well because it makes the problems seem a lot more tractable than uh, before. Oh, great pleasure! Thank great you. to meet you, Christian. I really really enjoyed your thoughts. I think there's a lot of stuff that we can do together. Yeah, yeah, it's it's great, great meeting you, Steve. Yeah, I mean we we're, we've been chatting on Twitter now also. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> let's uh, keep in touch for sure. All right, and uh, leave Descartes on the shelf. <laughs> yes. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please. No, take it easy, guys. I'm going to go back to my uh, Blockchain Association of New Zealand meeting. All right, Thank mate. you, Arthur. <laughs> no, thanks, Arthur. Take it easy. Thanks for listening to episode 41 of State Change. Next up, Kirk Dameron of Consensus, Stephen McCaskill of the Blockchain Association of New Zealand, and Jeffrey Tucker of Liberty.me shed light on Frederick Hayek's essay, The Use of Knowledge in Society. If you'd like to hear more, subscribe to State Change on iTunes or find us at statechange.net. You can follow us on Twitter at statechange underscore And if you have any comments about the show or any questions, email contact at statechange.net.